In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Advent is a season of waiting. Why waiting? Is it because we're not ready or because God isn't ready? Both, really. We need time. God knows, and God is willing to give us time. More generously than we want sometimes. And time can seem like eternity if you're waiting for something that's important. I've had a little time to think about time, more time than I was looking for, as you know, these last weeks and days. Uh, Time to kill or be killed, too. (laughs) Sorry, as a full-time pacemaker upon which the orderly procession of the hours and moments of my life was 100% dependent, decided to go its own way. Like how the computer in Stanley Kubrick's epic 2001 A Space Odyssey, it seemed truly to be turning against its human master. It was assuredly out to do me in, not to keep me going. The problem is so rare, it seems to have been a faulty lead, picking up ghost signals and telling the heart to stop beating because it had sensed it already had. You can push that to a limit, if you like, Um, It was discovered, actually, by God's grace when they were ready to discharge me, and they were doing an EEG, and the nurse administering it looked when I said, I feel like I'm going down in an elevator at the vital signs monitor and left the room. When nurses leave the room, it doesn't mean they're necessarily done with you. They might be just about to begin. She brought the cardiac people graciously back, and she said, When I saw you go from 70 to 40 beats per minute, it got my attention. When you went from 40 to 17, it concerned me. When you went from 17 to 1 beat per minute, I thought I'd better get some, uh, a little bit of help. So they kept me a little longer, you know, than, than, than than I thought. God is good. Um, the problem was a faulty lead, the wire that goes deep into the heart. By the time they had determined the whole thing had to be removed and replaced, it was a Friday. This is where time comes into it. And I was told I would have my heart rate locked off at a relentless 80 beats per minute. The pacemaker would no longer listen. It would just talk. I would be confined to bed and a chair between which I could not even move unaided because both were set with alarms. If I moved, the alarm would go off. I was wired with an EKG, uh, which was being read all the time somewhere in the basement, and a defibrillator, and watched as what was supposed to be a simple procedure of popping the pulse generator in and out, an office visit, day surgery, uh, became and done at a place and time of my choosing, and I was told that I could choose any time in the next 12 months to have that done, ended up taking the better part of five nights, six days, 28 tests to complete. Now, it's lovely to be the center of so much attention, (laughs) i got to say. You know, and when you're my age, you love to talk about what's wrong with you. But a little bit too much of a good thing, may I say? 
And it's an extremely rare thing that this happens. When it was first put in, in 09, and I'll get on, the one thing I said is, Lord, let this not be the system that was built on a Friday that's gone in here. The statistically tiny, well, guess what? God, has, he has his own logic. It was a wonderful experience, though, and I mean that sincerely. Um, and the most harrowing thing about it was not the procedure, which I had been through before, but the waiting. It was the waiting. And not just waiting, but waiting through restless days and sleepless nights of enforced immobility. Waiting. Now, what I am learning about waiting has led me to look quickly into a very deep place. Physiological psychology or psychological physiology, the two are different. I don't know enough yet to fill much of a book. I'm enough to be dangerous, but I am determined to pursue this further. What I have learned, though, from the little I can grasp, is that the body thinks The mind is in the body. And the heart is not just a mechanical pump driven by the brain. God bless you, Plato. You've cost us as much as you've given us. This whole mechanical notion of how creation works has long ago given way to something that only physicists and electrical engineers can begin to grasp. The body and the soul are one. When something goes wrong with the body, the soul is brought to a place of distress as well. I say this with chagrin because this is something that the philosophers who are our original psychologists and our poets knew in their bones, as did the inspired authors of sacred scripture. And they knew, as we've said again and again, that it's not the brain, it's not the mind, it's the heart that is the core of our being. Now, I'm going to flesh this out from what I know, and I've had this confirmed a little bit by some people who know this better than I, who are holding their breath for the errors I'm about to make, but I'm going there anywhere. In the cold light of a contemporary science, I know this, the heart is the place, the site, the battleground indeed at which those two great divisions of the central nervous system meet, compete, and fight it out. I refer, as you know, to the sympathetic and parasynthetic symptoms, systems rather, the divisions that motivate and activate the heart to either beat faster and also with greater interstitial tautness, tightness, accuracy, or rigidity between the beats, or to slow down the heart, make it beat more lazily and with greater HRV, sorry, Heart rate variability, very important concept. That means the time between the beats. Even when the heart is beating what seems to be regularly to us, in our bodies is never quite the same. I'll digress a bit because music helps me a lot. I was for a while a timpanist, and I studied with a timpanist who was the student of the one of the great timpanists in the CSO uh, during under Reiner. And he made me do what his teacher had made him do, which is forswear those beautiful instruments with all their residents, sit in a practice room with wooden sticks and an oscilloscope, 
and practice a roll watching the beats meeting the place where the sine waves cross this central node so that the rhythm, the, the sound would be open and continuous but not choked and absolutely precise in terms of temporal duration. It's utterly counterintuitive. It doesn't come naturally to us and it's very difficult to go down that path. We would think that the more regularly spaced the heartbeats, the more we would be at ease. It's the complete opposite. So, when the heartbeat beats at a steady, regular rate or aspires to it, the heart is under the direction of the sympathetic, so-called system. And that state is referred to us as the state of fight or flight. When the proverbial saber-toothed tiger approached our ancestors and we prepared to eat or be eaten, the sympathetic system, a division of the nervous system, was the one that was activated and prepared us for action. The heart beat regularly. We were ready to run toward or away from that which had engaged us unexpectedly. And all the other systems of the body kick in likewise. In contrast... The parasympathetic system, parasympathetic system, rest and digest, would kick in at the feast afterward, whether the feast was for us or for the tiger. In this system, and this is a system that is activated when we pray, think about it, the forces that will, for instance, bring an orchestra of a hundred to listen hard to one another and play as one with elasticity and fluidity, or a choir of monks to sing plain chant again as if they were one solo singer, taking the rhythmic pulse, shaping it, advancing and retreating, giving it that flexibility and space, allowing even the momentary inspiration to take hold. This is how the parasympathetic system moves us. It gives us peace. It gives us strength. And when the day is done and the sun has set, and it is time for the body to repair itself done in the fray of battle, that is when the parasympathetic system comes in. Enough science. I hope I haven't done any mischief. Our great founder, Thomas Cranmer, famously wrote a collect for this season, which we don't use. And yet it's a collect that is always in and never out of season. It's to do with Holy Scripture. And he says that we should read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. Now, we can sometimes read Scripture under great pressure. I suggest taking out the book of Revelation and having someone tell you how to mark everything that's coming on some kind of a calendar to get you thoroughly back into the fight-or-flight mode, you know? Cranmer is saying that Scripture was, above all, to be read devotionally, slowly, deeply, and prayerfully, not grabbing for an answer, but waiting for it to work the whole of its message to the deepest part of our soul. Only then would it begin to divulge its meaning, its intentions, its purposes for our hearts and for our lives. Why do I go all this through now? To escape the text, once again, 
Father, forgive. No. (laughs) For in the contrast between these two systems moving in and out of our hearts, fighting for control, this great tug of war between one another, one can also see the two systems that fight for our spirit, for our soul, and for our heart, that are brought into conflict when Jesus sets his foot on the stage. When Jesus begins his work of making that break, if you like, from the old covenant, or at least the way God's gift of vocation to his people Israel had been misunderstood, misapprehended, and initiating the kingdom of God as his last best way to bring us into that parasympathetic place for once and for all. It's also, I note, something that our president-elect is trying to do, as every president-elect before him has surely done, which is to move us from the mode of win or lose, win or take all, as his and every other campaign, I'm sorry, has ever achieved its victory on pure sympathetic work to that work of bringing the nation together as one. A work, I would suggest, for which he needs our prayer and a work for which scripture tells us our prayers are commanded. Commanded gets us back into the sympathetic place are earnestly invited for our good and for the good of the nation. And I wish him well. I mean that. Jesus says when his disciples are running back and forth between him and John the Baptist, who was incarcerated by Herod, that this change of time is coming. A new dispensation, a new era, not just a new time, but a new way of experiencing time are coming. And this is a move from the rat-tat-tat of me practicing on my practice pad, of snare drums beating, or timpani even, in the battlefield, which is the place for which they were made, out of doors, issuing clear commands with their friends the trumpets to the troops, to the sound of plucked and drawn strings, lute and harp and viola d'amore and therobo, indoor sounds. The move from outdoor to indoor music is also the move from outdoor to indoor voices, if you have children. People, men and women, not just approaching one another in confrontation, putting one another's egos on the defensive, forcing us to withdraw into our own strong towers, our kingdoms of solitude, by constant challenge and riposte, the rhythm by which the sympathetic division sets the pulse of our daily life. And we don't need to be fighting with one another. Just ask me an even simple question when I'm racing the clock at the beginning of the service to see someone entirely in fight and flight mode. I'm sorry, my brothers and sisters. That's the way it is. I'm working on it. This is also a matter of how the ancient Near East and maybe even this culture, shaped for better or worse the substance of relationships, the honor-shame system, not just between nations, not just between villages, 
and between families, but within families, between husbands and wives, parents and children. Now, the move that signals the end of this system, that Jesus' appearance on the scene heralds, is not the beginning of the end, as John preached in a real state of panic, stirring up fear everywhere he went, an apocalyptic moment in which the axe is being laid to the right roots and creation had to better prepare for the ultimate liquidation sale. But the end of the beginning, take a deep breath, chill out, that's one way to do it, as the old way of seeing God even, gripped in fear of imminent judgment for having failed to obey, perfectly obey every jot and tittle of this impersonal moral code, which is impossible to keep, man versus the law becomes person to person and summons Israel to live out her vocation in prayer, in trust, knowing that God is her lover and her friend, to be a light to the nations, a new living symbol of mercy and grace, a beacon of light in a dark world. At times of uncertainty, any time of uncertainty, any community will fall back, driven by anxiety, and prepare for a long, dark winter, a time of fight or flight. We, in the community of faith, are given a special gift, and that is to pray for our nation, too, and all nations, to make this transition to a place where we all aspire to true greatness, which is greatness of heart and generosity of spirit, untrammeled and uninhibited by fear. I went through a very difficult time waiting for this simple procedure to happen, and I did so on the cardio unit, knowing that there were some there who would not live the night through. I knew that my brother Denny was facing an endless surgery, one in which I did not know then he would be sewed up and opened up again as the surgeons fought for his life, and yet I still reached a point where I did not care whether I lived or died. Part of it was fear of what was to come the following morning, the other was just now knowing what that little tick-tock had been doing to my being, keeping me alive, yes, but at some cost. And yet I went into the procedure, finally on Monday morning, carried aloft by a sense of peace and even joy. And that was before the twilight uh, anesthetic had been administered. <laughs> I don't know why, but nothing will convince me that it was not your prayers that were doing that. Your prayers going before, your prayers reaching the members of that surgical team, your prayers lifting them up as they gathered, your prayers drawing from them a sweetness of concord which allowed them to truly focus as artists and not as slaves, as they sought to give me my life back again.
And I owe owe you no less than them the gift of having this life back. I can't thank you enough. I'll thank you, however, by coming to an end to this. (laughs) Jesus is not inviting us to withdraw from the world, and this is important, but to get involved, to jump in. We may do so in prayer, and there's no limit to what we can do surrounded by prayer and by God's Spirit. And Jesus has led us to the place of prayer, the place in vulnerability and trust and surrender as we open his texts and surrender our lives to the truths we find there. But God is saying, be careful. When you hear the rat-tat-tat, the military march, the insistent rhythm, resist it if you can. Take a deep breath, chill out. Don't let that carry us forward on our victory lap. Don't go for the rich garments, the soft garments that are the symbol of worldly power. Be very careful. Whatever deals we broker with worldly powers. We're asked to do one thing, to pray without ceasing and to obey, but even at our cost. We are called to carry the prophetic torch, the crown of laurel leaves. And that God will give the victory will be in his good time. And that torch is given for the salvation, not just of us, but those in the increasing dark shadow of this world's dreams and pretensions, which are turning more and more their hopes into national and international nightmares. Let us pray it may not be so for us, but let us pray so that it may not be so. And let us not let our worldview or our prayers be shaped by some cheap sense of imminent doom. God has said to us, as he said to Jesus, we will never know the day or time of his coming. Jesus didn't get to know, why do we? If you're working on a Bible study that's trying to work all that out, Put on rubber gloves, surgical grade, take it out and drop it into the garbage. You are wasting your time. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. What are we called to do? As Scott Cairns has written, I got this from my wife last night. I hope I quote it correctly. Let us put our hand into the hand of Jesus so that our hands will become his hands at work in this weary and sin-sick world, the world our Father so, so loved and loves. As our Lord says, there is no limit to what will then happen. The world will break forth into springtime. The blind will receive their sight. The lame will walk. Lepers cleanse, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them indeed, and maybe even in, in words. But one last word, and by no means least, let us not also succumb to the easy comfort 
with which the world wants to drag Jesus' message down to its own terms and use it for a rubber stamp to do whatever it thinks is good. We sabotage the gospel and subvert our Lord. We have to be ready to go in in gentleness and love and be rebuked and to rebuffed and to be called everything that people in some quarters are using for some political figures. And we can do this with the best will and the best spirits in the world. We are to persevere undaunted in prayer and in trust. Because as Jesus said, and then I'm done, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Amen. Please stand.